Paracast, with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietti. Well, I had some distressing news in our forums, and I confirmed it online at ufowatchdog.com mm-hmm. from our friend Royce Myers. Let me read what he wrote, and I think you might have some more insights on this. Yeah, sure. Yes, the rumor is true that I am taking an extended, if not permanent, break from the nutty world of UFOs. While there is an endless supply of UFO crackpots and con artists, I simply don't have the time or the inclination to keep up on all of it. I'd rather spend my time out in the sun with my family and friends over a cold one and a BBQ. Why waste any time on a field ripe with sheep that continually empowers charlatans and lunatics by embracing with arms open wide any UFO tale for sale or used to indulge someone's deepest, most paranoid fantasy? More to come shortly yeah what do you think i've actually spoken with uh, royce about this on the phone and via skype and you know gene i can't say i blame the man he has put up with more abuse just look at what he had to deal with with sean david morton and that whole situation i mean the guy does a good thing for the community by exposing obvious kooks and charlatans and what he gets in response is a whole lot of abuse and the lawsuit I mean, it's a no-win scenario. So I can't say that I completely blame Royce. And in fact, just moments ago, I got off the phone with the CEO of the Talkstar Network discussing a situation that I am dealing with with Royce with uh, our least favorite idiot out of Prague. That one. That one, who has just completely lost his mind. And that's the thing. It gets to the point where you say, okay, I know these people are nuts. I know they're not sane, but they're writing things about me. They're writing things about Royce on the web that, you know, stuff that's just really hateful, hurtful, and defamatory. It gets to the point where one can lose one's patience for this nonsense. And I can't say that I I blame Royce. I'm, I'm trying to convince him not to pull away. We're having long talks about this. I mean, I'm, I'm hoping he changes his mind. One of our, I think, strongest episodes of the Paracast that we ever did was the roundtable with Royce and Ritzman and you and me. I, I thought right. that was sure. one of our best episodes ever, and I'm hoping to have more of those with those guys in the future. I think that that makes for really good radio. But can you blame Royce? I mean, seriously. He is sitting there taking all this abuse. And what's worse, you know, I wrote a letter to the president or the head of the company that hosts that website run by that guy in Czechoslovakia. Yeah, the delusional moron. Right. Okay. Yeah. The the DM, we'll call him yeah, there for you go. short. Okay. Nice. The DM in, in Czechoslovakia. Now, he is hosted by the same web host I used to use, which mm-hmm. also runs the site from the American Nazi Party, the same oh, host. Boy. So we know this host doesn't care about someone being hurt or abused by incendiary language. He just cares whether it would bring a lawsuit. If it's illegal to do that, he'll take the site down. If it's not illegal, no matter how closely or how hard they push the buttons towards illegality, he's going to leave it alone. So I fear he's not going to do anything about this particular issue. Probably not. And this is what you get when you have the Internet. You get the good, the bad, the ugly. What are you going to do? But the question is, how does one stay quiet about this stuff how does one just sit here and tolerate it versus hitting back and speaking back and and again i mean look i I know that there are people out there who listen to our show who are upset when we say certain things certainly some of the guests we've had on have absolutely melted down after they've gone off the show because we've exposed them 
And, you know, they'll fire off emails that are really nasty, and there'll be one or two of those back and forth, and then we simply just forget about them. But, you know, in the case of the lunatic from Czechoslovakia, you got a situation where I haven't written the guy since the beginning of the year. I don't know how long it's been since Royce communicated with him. He just keeps dredging this stuff up and over and up again. And it gets to the point where it really is like that mosquito that's flying around your ear that won't stop buzzing. You get to a point where you break and you just want to smash the thing. This is like the nature of the beast here. I mean, just recently... Out of the blue, I got email from the banana head behind, you know, the oh, he who shall not be named behind the most ridiculous UFO cult story ever. He starts sending me these threatening emails again after he's been told to cease and desist, to not be in touch, to not attempt any sort of communication. These people are addicted to negative attention. They absolutely need it. They're sad, pathetic people. I know that, and you know that, and, and we're cognizant of that, but yet it gets to the point where if they stand in front of you and make enough noise, you just want to smack them. Maybe that's because I'm a native New Yorker. I react that way. I don't know. I've lived in the Southwest for 14 years, so it takes a little bit more to make me want to smack the person before it happens. But it is inevitable if someone is going to beat on you over and over again. At some point, you have to say, stop it. Maybe that's what he wants. Maybe he just wants you to get so incensed that you'll do something foolish and then he can take advantage of the situation. He's about to be pulled off the air. So if that's what he was looking for, that's what he's going to get. Because the last thing that a radio network wants is to be threatened legally because of the indulgences and because of the hate being spewed by one of its guests. That's the last thing they want. This guy is about to find himself without a soapbox. And that's fine. Let him spew any crap he wants on his website. All four people who look at it will see what's on his mind. But otherwise, it's simply not going to be that way. And just to mention it here on the air, I've gone ahead and posted on our forums under the thread that has his name in it, some of the email that he sent me and Ritzman and Royce and a few other people so that people can see the depth of this guy's madness. And that's the thing, Gene. That's why Royce, I think, wants out of this situation. He just is tired of dealing with this stuff because he's been doing this for how many years he's not any closer to having people recognize the fact that he has done really good work in this field it's not like he's making any money off of this and that's a funny thing about the Czechoslovakia idiot he claims that Royce is in, engaged in consumer fraud he's also put me under the banner on his website of consumer fraud last time I checked Gene we're not selling anything. So I'm not sure what consumer fraud he's talking about because, you know, if people don't want to listen to our show, hey, it's not like they're going to get a refund of their subscription fee because we don't charge people for the show. We don't charge people for access to our archives. We're not selling any products on this show. We have no products for sale on our website. Yes, we do run ads, but they're ads for third parties. Right. Not That's our ads. It's not our products. It's other people no. who have products and services to offer. But I guarantee you, if I sent you the bill for what it costs to run this show every month. <laughs> oh, I know. I no room left for the salary. Sorry about no, that. No, exactly. Well, there you go. Oh, my God. You mean that there's no retroactive pay? Oh, hell, man. Well, we're going to look for that. You know, just uh, <laughs> talk to my union representative. He'll, he'll speak All with right. you and like that. Next, though, we're going to talk about something which is a matter of information, not of inflammation, if you get my drift. How's that one? I can't <laughs> even good. say that again. We're going to talk to our old friend, Dr. Roger Lear. He's the man who mans the alien scalpel. Ow. Oh, boy. It's got to hurt. That's just got to hurt. And you'll find out why <laughs> coming up on the PowerCast. 
not in Kansas anymore. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on the line. William, can you give us an offer for our readers about getting the magazine? Yes, I sure can. Here's an offer for your listener. We have a special five-issue introductory offer for first-time subscribers, 1995 for your first five issues. Not available anywhere else, but on the Paracast. So, Bill, how do they place the order? People can place orders by going to www.ufomag.com. They can also place orders over the phone at 1-888-UFO-MAGA, or they can write to us at Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Bill, give us that contact information again. It is UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Or they can go directly to www.ufomag.com. And they can also call 1-888-UFO-MAGA. And they can subscribe right over the phone with a credit card. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. So, Dr. Lear, as we come near the 60th anniversary of Roswell, I wanted to ask you, maybe you can tell our listeners what the Roswell artifact is about. The Roswell artifact that uh, I was looking at? Indeed. Is that the one you're talking about? Yes, it is. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because there's been a number of different Roswell artifacts. Okay, let's talk about the one that you've worked with. Okay, it was a, a piece of material that was uh, lent to me uh, some time ago by a gentleman who is in the engine R&D business in Ventura, California. I've known him for quite some years, so he knew that I was involved with the UFO subject, and uh, one day he volunteered to show me something interesting and uh, pulled out this piece of material from his desk drawer. I took a look at it and uh, it looked quite interesting and I said, what, what is it? And he says, well, we believe this came from a Roswell crash site. Now, I said, well, what makes you think so? And he says, because the person that I got it from was riding through that area in 1947. He came upon this debris field and picked up this piece and took it with him. And I said, well, how sure are you that, you know, this thing is, uh, the pedigree is as what you say it is? And, you know, do you know anything about it whatsoever? And he says, yes, my brother is uh, a metallurgist. And he said that uh, he did a you know, metallurgy involving uh, engine uh, construction and so on. And that they'd run some tests on it. And they found some very uh, unusual things about it. And he said, besides that, he said, I lent the guy $35,000 with this as collateral. Hmm. 
Oh, well, that well, sounds well. like something that the loan, <laughs> the pawn shops are going to have to start wondering about this. You know, when you go to a pawn shop and you say, hey, guys, I got this alien artifact. What do I get for it? What's yeah, the right. value? Sure. Now, probably a pawn shop wouldn't give you 10 cents. But I assume since their uh, knowledge of metallurgy was uh, much better than mine at the time, that they knew what they were talking about. And if he wanted to lend $35,000 based on his uh, brother's analysis of the material, I assume, you know, he figured that was the, the, the real McCoy. So, uh, anyway, he said that the fellow uh, was then uh, killed in a motorcycle accident in Mexico, and now he had the material, and he was out to 35000 So, uh, he asked me if I wanted to do some analysis uh, of this material, and at that time, we were uh, working with uh, implants, and so we said okay, and the piece of material was gently removed from the original piece, and then it was sent in, and a lot of different things were found out about it that suggested that it had uh, non-terrestrial uh, origins. Dr. Lear, who was the material sent to for analysis? It was uh, sent to, uh, first of all, let me explain the pedigree here. There was several analysis done on this material, only one of which has become known about and is quite prominent. The first material was done by uh, a scientist at the University of California, San Diego, Dr. Russell Vernon Clark. And he had done some uh, isotopic uh, ratio studies on the main portion of the material, which was the silicon material, the uh, lesser in uh, lesser ingredients, so to speak. And he found a number of significant non-terrestrial isotopic ratios. We then held a press conference uh, for the 50th anniversary of uh, Roswell, in which uh, this material was presented presented to the public, and it was staged very uh, poorly and we were rushed off the stage and hurried away in a car and didn't accept any questions from the press. And the person that set this up, and I don't mention names on the air, the person that set this up really didn't do a very good job. And unfortunately, it was bad all the way around because when this was finally you know, released, and it was released to the public, but it was the same day that the Mars lander landed on Mars. So well, who do you think got the most of the publicity? Well, that's an easy guess, the Martians. Yeah. Right. Then, oh, those, uh, those Martians then are always looking to get the lion's share of attention. We've got to watch out so. for Martians. Yeah, they're, 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 they're uh, you know, greedy. They're greedy guys, I guess. Right. Anyway, it sat for a few years and nothing was done. And then uh, finally, uh, through uh, Willie Schriever, he was able to get me into a laboratory, which I can now mention, in uh, Texas called Southwest Labs. And he had a friend there who was uh, now, unfortunately, deceased by the name of William Mallow. And Bill had done some scientific research on the implant material, and uh, Willie got us in there to look at this material again, and they ran a multitude, and I mean a multitude of examinations uh, on this particular material and found far more than just the unusual isotopic ratios. They'd, it had a curve in it, and they were able to extend and by computer analysis measure the base curve of what appeared to be a machine surface and it came out so that it came out of a piece of a, 
on the cylinder, which had a 16-foot diameter. They did the temperature gradient analysis and said that the temperatures that this had reached were probably 2 to 4 million degrees Fahrenheit. Other elements as to follow the thermal conductivity, uh, it almost defeated the law of conservation of energy principle. So, uh, as I said, there was a lot of analysis that came out of that. And then a third analysis uh, was done in Europe by scientists uh, over there. Fortunately, the fellow that uh, we obtained this from in the first place came down with the cancer of the pancreas and is now deceased. The material then uh, went to his wife and his wife said she didn't know what to do with it and so I gave her a hand with that and now it's uh, safely secured in uh, an unknown area where nobody can get their hands on it. But everyone who's had anything uh, to do with this material, uh, fortunately except myself, has had very severe problems. Dr. Vernon Clark, uh, when he arrived back at uh, San Diego, found that he had no job. Uh, now, how do you get rid of a tenured professor? Well, it's very simple. It's the way it can't be done. Well, it can be done very simply. They just got rid of his, his department. The whole department was gone. Because he suffered uh, loss of income, he wound up uh, with a problem with his wife and wound up on a divorce and had no job and no wife and eventually no place to live. We've had several uh, television stations trying to track him down. They couldn't find him anywhere. We believe that he's still you know, teaching maybe someplace else or in California where we can't find him. I guess he's still alive. As I said, William Mallow, who did most of the research on this material, came down with two different kinds of leukemia at the same time, which is totally unheard of. And he lasted two weeks, and he died. And there was two other individuals that had something to do with the material, including the original owner that found it. He, he, he died. And two other people died. So uh, there was a, there was going to be a uh, worldwide uh, UFO conference put on on the internet, uh, which uh, a friend of mine by the name of Chris Wyatt, I don't think you'll mind me mentioning his name, who worked for a company in uh, San Francisco, ex CBS producer, was going to put on a conference and use this. Uh, material as a draw to get people to participate first UFO uh, international conference and um, suddenly the conference was canceled when you put in the URL for the website it came up black and he was visited by two uh, individuals who took him for a ride around the San Francisco Bay Area telling him that there was uh, no UFO press conference and the material that uh, was supposedly from a Roswell crash site was nothing but an ordinary piece of a silicon chip. So why would they need to take him around San Francisco? Hey there, listeners. Have you ever thought about hosting your website? You know where you can actually host your blog or your webpage? Well, I'll tell you where to go. Host I can host I can and as a matter of fact they provide all our hosting too for this site and guess what their price starts at only $7 a month how could you go wrong 
It's reliability and speed speaks for itself. And that's why we're able to provide you with this radio show that you're listening to right now. It's host I can. Give them a try. You'll be glad you did. Hey, all you have to do is go to our website, thepowercast.com, and scroll down a little bit. You'll see a host I can banner. That's a host I can banner at thepowercast.com. Click on that banner and you'll learn more about Host I Can, where we host our sites. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you've heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with James Sandler and David Bianchi. You never know what's going to happen next. Hey, let me tell our listeners, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, Dr. Roger Lear, the wielder of the alien scalpel, who does implant research, joins us. So let's look at that, Dr. Lear. <laughs> Why would they do all this if there wasn't something to it? And even more important, anything strange happened to you because of your involvement in this? Essentially, no. Uh, not regarding this piece of material, but I've had other things involved that wound up with some state persecution against me for being involved with the uh, implant research. But I'm still here. I'm still walking around. I'm still alive. And I still have two arms and two legs, so they haven't got me yet. And I try and make a lot, not a lot of noise, and I don't push people, and I don't make comments about other people, and I just try stay with scientific fact. This, I mean, you asked me, so this was kind of an interesting story, so I thought certainly it's uh, worthy of the listeners knowing about. Well, Dr. Lear, let me ask you a question. If, if there was research and analysis done on these pieces of the material, I assume there were written analysis reports. Do you have those? Are those available anywhere? I wish I could say I did. I have some of them. Uh, they were in a big file, uh, a file and uh, they went to the uh, owner of the material, and I guaranteed him that he would uh, get them without the copies being made, and he did, and he copied uh, a few pieces of it, and he gave those to me, and that's what I have. Now, the file is still someplace, but after his death, there was a big uh, harangue over the estate because he was kind of a wealthy fellow, and uh, it's still going on, so uh, all the files and things that he had in his office uh, we still don't have our hands on yet but his wife knows that there is a file and uh, once the uh, estate is uh, settled then she may be privy to being able to uh, look for it again. But you say you have pieces of the report, is that stuff that you can release? Yes sure, I'm not afraid to release that stuff Put it on your website. I'd love to take a look at it. I think a lot of our listeners would as well. I mean, one of the problems in in this is that when we hear about things like analysis work being done, and we've taken other UFO camps to task on the show about this, where they claim, oh, there's all this analysis work, and we say, well, where is it? Well, it's not available. That's, That's problematic, as you can understand. So if you have anything that can be shared we would implore you to share that with, with anybody who would be willing to look at it. Because especially if indeed there is some legitimacy 
to the claim of this thing being from Roswell, which which actually leads me to another question. Did the appearance of this metal in any way conform with the reports of what was supposedly found at the debris sites? Oh, what a nice, juicy, good question that is. That's our specialty, my friend. (laughs) We showed this to uh, Jesse Marcel, Jr. Mm -hmm. Now, he talks about uh, the piece of material that he describes as tinfoil, that he could uh, wad up in the palm of his hand, let it go, and then it straightens back out again. Mm -hmm. He talks a piece of uh, what was considered a lightweight I-beam with the symbols symbols. on the inside. But he never talks about some of the other things that were laying on the floor. So when he was shown this piece of material, uh, he said, this is the first time I've ever seen anything like this since I was 12 years old. And he says, I call this black Bakelite material. He says, because I didn't know what else to call it. And uh, he recognized it as being part of some of the material that uh, that Jesse Sr. had brought in and strewn across the kitchen floor. So he recognized it. He confirmed yeah. you that. Yeah, I see. He, he, right. he recognized it. So uh, there's, you know, another. Now, I want to clear up the fact, and, and before somebody says, oh, he said this, he said that. What I said was, listen very carefully. I said it was from a Roswell crash site. But there were several Roswell crash sites, and we don't know which one it was from. So it's better to say that it's from a New Mexico suspected UFO crash site in 1947. We don't know whether it was the one on the ranch or whether it was the Socorro site or, or where it was because we don't have that data. So you say that there is a piece that you have uh, basically absconced away. There's a piece of this stuff, the major piece I'm assuming you still have. So why not move forward with this, Dr. Lear, and have this examined by a world-class facility because it seems like that would provide the definitive physical proof, uh, right? You're making me laugh. Actually, you're making me laugh. Are you going to find a more world-class facility than Southwest Laboratories in, in Texas? Um, That's a well, black-budget laboratory, my friend. And they not only tell you you know, what they can if they know about what you got, but they also intimate what they don't know about. And when you see these guys crowded into a room looking at stuff with the lab, the supervisor out in the hall with his hands on his hip mattered in hell because they're taking time away from government projects. You're not going to find a more world-class laboratory than that. Well, here's the problem. There's a credibility problem there, Dr. Lear. Um, And I'll tell you why. I, I say this because you search for Southwest Labs on the Internet, you don't find much of anything. So when we no, say it's, it's a black budget lab, but you can drive that. there. You can yeah, drive there. Black, you can see it. As far as the mainstream is concerned, as far as you and I and the rest of the world is concerned, a black budget lab doesn't exist. Essentially, it's a black budget item. It's not supposed to exist. It's like you know the way the NSA portray themselves as years. Uh, uh, All right. Years. Well, let me ask you this: What would yeah. you consider would be a black a, a world class laboratory? I mean, if I had something that was metallic that I want to know about, I think I'd turn to a company like DuPont, for example. I'm just pulling this off the top of my head. You know, I, okay, I I'll tell you what. You arrange it with DuPont, and I'll get you a piece of the material. Really? Yeah. Okay, so if I can arrange for a major known, not black budget, but known lab, to look at it, you'd facilitate that? Absolutely. Gene, I think I've just heard a challenge here. This is good. Oh, this I like is this. wonderful. I like Let, let's keep going. I, let's I, I see what we can this. do with that. Sure. Again, Dr. Lear, and understand, it's in our interest to actually have a piece of verifiable physical evidence. It's the holy grail of the UFO world. 
So if we have this and no one can contest it, then it seems like we've got something to talk about, right? How about the how about the implant materials which we've had now since 1995, looked at by Los Alamos National Labs, New Mexico Tech, Seal Labs in California, Southwest Labs, the University of Pisa, York University, Toronto University, and on and on and on that I published in at least four books in three different languages, been on a myriad of television shows. Uh, you know, a few thousand hours of radio and nobody gives a hoot. Part of the problem, of course, with any of these topics is that engaging in a discourse about them as far as the mainstream is concerned is always problematic, and we all know that. When we try to talk about these things in a serious light, it's very, very difficult, obviously. Most of the TV shows I've seen that deal with these topics treat them in a sensationalistic light. They have their conclusions before they even start doing the show. And, and I'm sure, Dr. Lear, you've been on shows where you thought that there was going to be one agenda in how your material was presented. When you saw it after the fact, it wasn't what you thought it was. Oh, absolutely. I've been stung as, as much as any researcher in this field has been stung, and that's quite a few times. However... There are exceptions. For example, Confirmation, which was done in 1999, a major primetime NBC show, which had the second highest ratings of any show in the country for the night, uh, in which the, the material was followed into the laboratory. The laboratory scientists were interviewed on television. Where did we get out of that? Nothing. So there was no follow-up from the media? You had a major piece like that? I mean, yeah, no. no, that's what I'm telling you. you. You put all this out in front of people's faces. I put it on the Internet for Internet challenges in the scientific community. Uh, they don't want to lose their jobs by talking about a piece of UFO material. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www dot f-a-t-e-m-a-g dot com what are you waiting for your fate awaits gene and i love to hear from our listeners if you'd like to share your thoughts with us send your messages to news at the com. that's news at the com. and don't forget to check out our website at the com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg. And David Bien, and we're talking to Dr. Roger Lear, implant researcher. And we're hoping to get a little traction here on some ideas to get more research and attention done with regard to this research and maybe get some results that could be presented in greater detail to the scientific community. Yeah, so you you tell me, uh, my friend, what, what do you have to do to get uh, either the public to ask questions or the scientific community to get in 
an argument as they did with the material, and they're still arguing about it that was in the meteorite uh, where there was carbonaceous life. And fortunately, that was one of the few things where NASA stuck to their guns and insisted they were correct. The experiment that was done uh, years before that, in which it was designed by a very famous geological scientist, in which they proved beyond the shadow of a doubt that the chemical mixtures uh, obtained from the spacecraft uh, from the ground uh, proved that there was life in the Martian soil, and the entire scientific community denied it. They thought about it and swept it under the rug. <laughs> that, that's not UFOs. That's regular science. I attended a meeting about four months ago at JPL. And uh, I, I went through the routine of asking guy questions about Mars and the artifacts on Mars, showed him the pictures, and they said, why are you showing us this? And I said, why am I showing it to you? I, I want to know what the scientific answers are. Oh, well, it's probably nothing. It's just a, a photographic artifact. Well, are we talking about the supposed face on Mars? We're not talking about that, right? No, we're talking about the tubes and the, the changes of color in the polar regions so seasonally, where you can, from you know, good, good views, you can see that it's, a, it's some kind of plant life that's changing color. Uh, there's all sorts of artifacts all over Mars. Uh, Di Pietro, Molinari, uh, you know, whether you have respect for that to these people or not. Even Tom Van Flandern is a very well-respected scientist that uh, puts out the Meta Research Bulletin once a month. It's proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that some of these things, artifacts on Mars, uh, can't, impossible, can't be due to nature. And yet nobody cares. Nobody talks about it. It's just poor little Tom Van Flandern. Well, actually, one of the most interesting things just in the last week or two that um, came out in the media were some pictures of these incredibly strange holes on the surface of Mars that almost look tunneled. I mean, they're talking about these things being cave entrances, and I'm dying to get Mac Tonys back on the show because he's a, a former guest of ours and a friend of the show's that has written a book about these strange issues and artifacts on Mars. And uh, some of these, these holes, they've seen them in the equator area, but there's one in particular, there's one photo, where it almost looks like this hole was manufactured. There's no material around the edge, the rim of the hole, to indicate any displacement material outwards. And the hole goes straight down, the way the light's falling on the picture. It looks almost like someone cut a black hole in the surface of the planet, and the terrain goes right up to it and it just stops. And the hole goes straight down, and it's absolutely stumped the scientists. The NASA image processing experts are saying, what in God's name is this? It's well, very strange it. stuff. Yeah, I guess that's another one we could add on to the list. How about the photo that shows uh, uh, water? A spurting forest from the surface, and they're still questioning whether there's liquid water on Mars. I'm not, oh, well, I'm, what, what, what's that? I haven't seen that photo. Which one is? Oh, that? yeah, it's been on the internet. You just have to go. It's there right on Matt Nass's website. Well, there is a photo that shows the remnants of water having been there recently, but it doesn't necessarily. No, this shows one shows actually a water spout coming right out of the ground. Really. Yeah, but, you know, going back full circle again, see, you got all these things, but who cares? You know, the, the, the public, uh, you know, uh, wants to know who won the Rams game and, uh, you know, what's going on with Paris Hilton. Well, I suppose <laughs> when we talk about this, obviously, in the larger context, it is a situation where people could say, look, we have such such pressing issues here at home. We have 
this debacle of a war, to even call it a war, is stretching it. We have the impending implosion of the dollar, which is already happening. There are so many things that occupy the concerns of people. I think the problem here, guys, is that these topics are simply deprioritized at every level because they don't have what people would consider to be an immediate impact. And also, Dr. Lear, I think a big part of it is because and of a lot of the loonies that are involved in this. And we started the show, the preamble to the show, talking about some of our own experiences with some of the people who inhabit this world as far as talking about these topics. And I don't want to bring it up, but I have to mention it. We recently had someone come on the show and even say that the things that you were doing were less than legitimate. Um, it just seems like there's so much infighting and so much noise in this field that the perception on the part of the mainstream is that it's nothing but crazies that talk about this stuff. Well, it's you, always, you always have to look at the individual that's uh, putting, spouting forth this nonsense. Sure. You know, you know that I've had you know about 4,000 hours of radio and maybe 1,000 hours of television, and I've done live you know, conferences all over the world, and mm-hmm. I will defy anyone at any time to hear me say anything that I have ever said about any researcher in this field. I don't do that. I I don't have the time uh, to uh, mess with either politics uh, or trying to defame somebody. I don't care if I personally think they're a nutcase. I mean, that's not for public knowledge. I'm there to present the facts. And when I present the facts, if they don't like what I say, you know, go to where I got the facts from because I'm just a parrot. I'm I'm nothing. You know, all I'm doing is is showing the public, you know, what somebody else that has far more knowledge, which are the scientists, have reported to me. I have never written a book without publishing all the data in the back of the book. You know, if it's all there, somebody doesn't want to believe it, then fine, you can be a flatlander. You know, but I don't. As I said, I don't have the time. If I, you know, there's only so many hours in a day, and I'm still uh, practicing. I have a 16-year-old daughter. My uh, son has now moved in with us with two grandchildren. Uh, we have three rabbits, one dog, and a hamster. <laughs> no partridge in the pear tree. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's about it. Okay. So, If you're looking for a better way to present or collaborate during your conference calls, your solution is simple. Web conferencing with GoToMeeting. During your call, everyone logs on to GoToMeeting.com, and your computer screen shows up on their computer screens. It's like you're all in the same room. GoToMeeting is perfect for sales or product demos, training, or real-time collaboration. Plus, you're not charged per minute like other providers. You can meet as often as you want, for as long as you need. With GoToMeeting, you can meet with anyone, anywhere, without leaving your office. You'll not only save time, but money, too. See for yourself. Try GoToMeeting free for 45 days. Just visit GoToMeeting.com forward slash podcast. That's GoToMeeting.com forward slash podcast. Try GoToMeeting today. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the podcast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. 
And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene in data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Let me tell our listeners, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to the alien implant researcher, Dr. Roger Lear. And by the way, before we proceed with our final two segments here of the interview, where can people get in touch with you if they want more information? Well, they can get in touch with me through my website, which is alienscalpel.com. Or if they want to uh, call my science office, it's, uh, I can give out the number. It's 805 495 2613. Once again, 805-495-2613. And if they're interested in any of the materials, we have a number of books, DVDs, videos, and other materials that we sell. And all that money goes into our 501c3 nonprofit organization, which is a legitimate you know, uh, organization that you can deduct from your taxes. All that goes into funding more research. We're just getting ready, Gene, Dave, to uh, do the next surgery, which will be the 13th. Yeah, that would be really good. You know, each one uh, that I do, we're able to look for different things. Like the last one I did, we were able to isolate a radio signal, which, uh, and I know absolutely nothing about radio or radio frequencies, but I just happen to have the equipment, so we were able to use it. We isolated a radio frequency I sent it in to let's call it a reliable source and they sent me back a chart from the FCC and uh, guess where this frequency lies where deep space communication do you now, know the exact uh, uh, frequency of this transmission is it a steady or is it a pulsing transmission no it's a, it's a steady frequency and of course once the thing was out of the body and disconnected uh, we were able to get uh, absolutely nothing. Now, I can give it to you if you can uh, hang on. I don't know how much time do we have here. Maybe yeah. towards the end of the show, we'll ask you, or maybe you can send us an email. We'll post it on our message boards, what frequency, and let our radio experts out there figure out what's going on. I have yeah. a question about this. You say when you pull it out of the body, it stops it transmitting. It's unplugged. It doesn't do anything. It had a, uh, a six uh, milligauss uh, magnetic field because we use a, a Gauss meter, and we check all of these before we remove them. And that's a pretty strong uh, magnetic field. We also use a trimeter. You, you know what that is? Explain to our audience what that is. It's, it's, it's an instrument that uh, registers uh, electromagnetic emissions, both on an electrical scale, on a magnetic scale, and uh, an electromagnetic scale, which is a combination of the two. You can tell uh, from this just what kind of a feel that you're getting out of it. So it's kind of a, an interesting instrument called a trimeter. And then if you just use a plain, ordinary uh, Gauss meter, we can tell that it's a magnetic field and what strength it is. But usually around four to uh, six uh, milligauss is, uh, is a pretty uh, strong magnetic field coming out of uh, an object, especially when it's in the body. So you were detecting a um, radio frequency transmission coming from this object before it was removed, then when you removed it, I'm guessing I'm wondering at what point did the transmission cease? 
Exactly. The next time you che- we check it is when it's out and uh, sitting in the jar in the patient's blood serum. Mm-hmm. And uh, at that point, you can't get any uh, electromagnetic field. You can still get a strong magnetic field, but you can't get an electromagnetic field out of it. And there was no longer generating uh, radio frequency. And I have it for you right here if you want to write it down. Yes. It's uh, quite, quite a few numbers. It's 30.0127322 megahertz. Low band. And as I said, I don't know anything about radio frequencies, but uh, this is where it falls on a chart as a fixed or mobile deep space communication frequency. And I had someone else that uh, called me and told me that this frequency... Ladies and gentlemen, this may strike you as being just one of those things, and probably it is, but as soon as Dr. Lear mentioned the frequency, the connection failed. Oh, well. Mm. One of those things. What's the frequency, Kenneth? So, Dr. Lear, can you tell us about the removal you have happening? What's the background on this case? This is a case, uh, and, and as you know, most of the cases I do, we don't allow anyone to undergo a regressive hypnosis because basically we don't want the criticism saying some hypnotherapist to put crazy ideas in right. a person's head. So everything they have is, has to have some conscious memory, and I sent them about a, a 42-page question that they have to fill out and that's been the questionnaire has been designed by psychologists and uh, people who are well respected in the abduction phenomena such as Bud Hopkins and David Jacobs I work uh, on the west coast here with uh, Yvonne Smith who uh, has done a number of different cases but anyway they relate uh, a certain amount of data in reference to having a bedroom experience a strange dream waking up with the marks on the body or seeing something and this was uh, a typical case. It's a male and by accident he had an x-ray taken of his leg following an injury and the doctor found a metallic foreign body in the knee and stated that there was no uh, puncture wound and no evidence where this thing had gone in at. They sent me the x-rays. I confirmed uh, with the radiologist that the object was there and I emailed him back and talked to him on the phone and uh, they requested that he get a CAT scan so we could do an intact uh, location, an exact location of where this was. A very compliant person. They did that, sent the CAT scan back and so now we know exactly where it is. And uh, the next Next step now, he's going to be uh, coming. He's in San Diego for a visit. He's going to come up here. We're going to do the uh, initial uh, history and physical and uh, laboratory test on him. At what point do we have enough results to say, hey, we've got something here that makes sense. Let's try to figure out what the significance of this thing might be. Well, the time delay depends on, upon how much money that there is in the kitty to get the test done. And that's one of the problems. You know, you can't do backdoor research. you got to walk in through the front door. Now, fortunately, I've been doing this for a certain length of time now, so I know what tests to order. So I don't walk into a scientific laboratory and say, hey, I don't, I don't know what this is. Tell me. No, I walk in and... We have a very stepwise thing. So it takes time to, to get the 
results done now. I recently spent two days at the uh, University of Toronto uh, with the chairman of the material science department there looking at some material that we did from the last surgery. And uh, those test results are now back. I'm going to uh, present them uh, either in Roswell or at the uh, Bay Area UFO Conference, which is uh, right at the end of August. But here's the thing, Dr. Lear. When you go to something like the Roswell event or the Bay Area UFO Expo, isn't it true that you're going to present findings to an audience of believers? I mean, they're going to very likely accept just about anything you have to say. And that's my concern here. Is there some way to get it to a, a more wide stream audience than that? Those are yeah, I, I would love to be able to do that. Now, according to the figures that I hear, they, they, they supposedly expect between seven hundred and fifty to nine hundred thousand people during the week of the Roswell event. The Roswell, as you know, has become an international airport, so they're supposed to be flying people in from all over. So this won't be exactly the typical choir. So I think it's probably a pretty good place uh, to uh, present this material. But you're absolutely right. Uh, most of the conferences you go to, you're talking to the choir. And uh, if they go there and listen to certain people that talk and they don't know anything about them, they'll even believe them. So, <laughs> so you're just hitting a slice of the pie. But I do have, you know, when I write the books, and uh, if they're a decent-selling book, I've got books that have been published in Brazil and Portuguese, France. Uh, I've got one that was published in Hungary, another one that was published in Poland. So, you know, it does kind of sneak out around the world. I guess they do sell, otherwise the publishing companies wouldn't publish them. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene and data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, the alien implant researcher, Dr. Roger Lear, is here. And okay, when you go to these conferences, obviously, you're listening to people with widely varying viewpoints, some of which that you don't agree with, perhaps, some of which may even present opinions that contradict what you have to say. How do you deal with that dilemma? Well, uh, as of late, the last few years, I've been warning audiences that some, if someone comes up there in any form, I don't care uh, whether it's me or anybody else, and says they have all the answers, uh, I really tell the audience to put a finger in each ear and run as fast as they go because <laughs> it's, such, it's such a complex subject. Anybody says anything like that, you better run because that's the biggest bunch of bull you could ever hear in your life. Uh, every time, uh, Gene and David, that I take out something from the body and I submit it for, you know, testing, I, I guarantee you that what it's going to do, instead of give you answers, it's going to give you about 10 more questions. And, you know, I am hoping that somebody will come along, maybe from the media, maybe even you guys, and that we put together a huge conference someplace in which we invite academic science to participate, and then we uh, we present some of the scientific findings of stuff that's already around. You know, uh, Peter Sturrock at Stanford University isn't blind. He knows about 
about this material. Nick Velasquez in Canada knows about it. There are other scientists that know, you know, metallurgists that know about it. Let's get all these guys together and, you know, uh, have a real nice presentation. I, I would love to do that. And I would even be a host for you if you wanted. So if you guys can put something like that together, why, boy, more power to you. <laughs> Somebody's throwing well, us the gauntlet, David. I just don't know I whether know. we're the people who can sponsor events of this sort, though. Well, you know, we almost did it in London about five years ago. And there was a fellow there who was a big promoter, a UFO subject, his second highest on the Internet. He said, let's put on a huge conference and let's not make it all UFOs. Let's make it one day something and UFOs the next day. So he got together with some of the biggest rock bands in the world. And uh, he found one of the biggest venues in London. And they had almost gotten ready to sign the contract. And this was going to be huge. And they had the sponsors to pick up the money. And at the last minute, the venue canceled and lost the venue. I had even called uh, Edgar Mitchell, Dr. Mitchell, to see if he would uh, participate in the conference. And he said he would. So, uh, you know, it's been attempted before, but it's just not been successful. But somebody could do it again. You just don't have to have all UFOs. Let's get the people in there. Give them a two-day ticket. You buy one ticket, you get both events. People will come, they'll, they'll listen, you know, we, and we present some material from both science and ufology. Those of us that handle the scientific aspect of it. People are not going to go there and, and look at a screen to see little blobs of light going by. They're, they're not interested in that. That doesn't tell you anything. You can be the biggest experts that you want. Film analysis, they don't care about that. Well, I, I think actually they, they do. The problem is that what you find is that most of the people that attend these things are people that are going to drink the Kool-Aid, Dr. Lear. And this is something that I had heard about the um, International UFO Congress this year. I heard that it was just an absolute circus. People go there and present the most outrageous stuff. Some of the backers of the most well-known, classically ridiculous, totally debunked UFO nonsense go there and they find a receptive audience. So the problem is, can you get to go to an event that will take it seriously? That's, that's the core problem. Somehow we, 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 uh, the boat turned over in the stream here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You're saying just exactly what I was saying. I said, let's put on a conference in which we invite the general public, not the choir. Right, but, but see, the problem is it's kind of like in, inviting the general public to a porn conference. They don't want to be seen there. It's like they don't want to be associated with it. This is why, I mean, you know, but pornography get, sells really well on the web, but people don't go to the little theaters to go sit in there because nobody wants to be seen in these places. Well, got the problem look, legitimacy. look at it this way. Pick out a rock and roll group, a famous rock and roll group. Uh, Radiohead. Okay. Let's say you got Radioheads and, and, and ten, 10 others. And he put on a two-day conference. One is uh, going to be nothing but rock and roll bands, and the second day is going to be on UFOs. And you sell them one ticket. You get the, the ten big rock bands, and you're out now you're looking at fronting a couple of million bucks. And that's the conservative. You start adding But how much do they spend on a rock band conference, guys? How much do no. they spend? How much does who spend? The typical person who goes? It's the promoters. I'm not in the rock venue business. I don't really know. Well, take a guess. Well, it's got to cost at least a couple of hundred thousand to, not, if to at least a few hundred thousand dollars to put together a venue. It's up yes, to a million dollars they put on yeah. with a venue. 
So what's the matter with having a two-day deal? They put out the same amount of money. It doesn't cost them another dime. Yeah, I, I guess I'm having a problem seeing the cross-marketing here because then you have to get the rock bands that are willing to be associated with a paranormal event that's a pretty small number of bands because, again, you have a legitimacy problem. This is a catch-22. And, and by the way, Dr. Lear, this is a problem we run into on the Paracast where we try to have serious discussions about this stuff, and we end up getting attacked by both sides. The debunkers attack us and the believers attack us. Because yeah, remember that when I said rock bands, that was only a hypothetical example. Okay, or, all right. I mean, you could, you could make it uh, a famous art show. You could make it some, something else. I mean, there's lots of things that attract people. That's all I'm saying. Sure. Is get, get something that attracts more than the choir. And then you'll start to pass the information out to the general public. Absolutely. I think that that, is, that makes perfect sense in theory. And again, we're trying to do that on the Paracast. It's a really tough thing to do. It's very tough to accomplish, as you so well know, and as we well know. Finding a context where these things can be discussed in a way where the average person will participate is tough. And, and let's qualify this. And I've said this on the show before. It's always fascinated me how people are willing to have very serious discussions about religion and God, and to ignore this stuff, where this stuff, to me, is almost more tangible than anything presented by religion or God. But yet, you have a 2,000-year branding exercise, where, you know, you talk about religion, the Judeo-Christian tradition, that's got 2,000 years of branding behind it. That's a really hard thing to go up against. It's the ultimate branding exercise. I want to ask you, Dr. Lear, once again, where do people get in touch with you to learn about your alien scalpel implant research? Again, the website is a good place, which is simply aliens with an S, scalpel.com, A-L-I-E-N-S-C-A-L-P-E-L.com, or they can call my scientific office at 805 Four nine five two six one three. That's eight zero five four nine five two six one three. And the secretary will answer any and all questions that, that she can. Thank you for joining us this week on. Thank the you for having me on. Thank you, Doctor. Take care. UFO researcher James Vaney coming up next on the Paracast. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. So, Jeremy, you have a book called I Know Why the Aliens Don't Land. So, let's start this interview right off the crazy bat. Why don't the aliens land? Gosh, heavy hitting right off the bat. Well, why what? don't they land? They don't land because they see from the point of view of oneness and we see from the point of view of separation. And so to just sort of land and try to engage us would be to engage our illusion. So it would do no good for them to, to land or to even explain that to us because logically we'd understand it like you could get it if I just sort of explained it to you, but that doesn't wake us up. So there's no point to that. So you're saying the aliens have an agenda and that agenda is beyond us? No, I don't think it's beyond us. I, I mean, I don't think it's beyond us logically. I think if I were to say, well, you know, basically for lack of a better term and I, and not, to sound too religious nutty, but, you know, if they're awakened in some way that we're not to oneness, and if that's actually the case and separation is illusion, right, they would be here waking us up because waking another up is really waking oneself up. So I think that's sort of what they're doing. I don't know if that's, you know, I don't know about all these other side agendas, cattle mutilations or, you know, whatever, but uh, 
Well, are they trying to be. wake up cattle, too? <laughs> they, could, they very well, well could be. Well, actually, you know, citing the cattle mutilations, you're bringing up one of the rare things when it comes down to um, interactions with these entities, which is physical evidence. Cattle mutilations are physical evidence. And certainly one can question the veracity of that physical evidence, but it's still physical evidence where, you know, this is, of course, the holy grail of UFO research and talking about entities is to be able to have some sort of a concrete example of the remnants of a visitation, but as where it's just so difficult to do that, that, you know, bringing up cattle mutilations is interesting. There've been a history of them, and some of them seem to defy certain aspects of scientific knowledge. So are, are you saying by that then, for example, cattle mutilations are not of extraterrestrial origin? Though I, I even hesitate to use the term extraterrestrial because we don't even know. Um, uh, well, I don't know. I, 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 wasn't, I was saying the opposite. I was saying I was using that as an example of, you know, something that they are doing. But, you know, oh, do okay. I really know that? I don't know. But, but I was just using it as an example because it's sort of a famous one that people, you know, sort of associate with UFOs and therefore aliens. Um, but I could have said anything. I could have said anal probes. You know, I don't, I don't know what all of the uh, just sort of general sidebar issues are with, with these things. I, but I'm, I've got a, a fairly good lock on the, uh, the general sort of thesis that they're working under, which is to uh, sort of midwife us into oneness and out into the universe to be the aliens to another planet to just sort of keep this waking up thing going on. And, and to talk about that sounds sort of, new, like I said, religious, new age, whatever. It sounds kind of hokey. But I'm not talking about it in that superficial, can't we all just get along oneness level? I'm talking about really, really a revolution in consciousness that uh, I think is what we either wake up to or we die on the vine. You know, I think it's that simple and that horrifying. Well, let me ask you a question here, which is going to be the devil's advocate question, of which there possibly will be many, but that that's how we go here at the PowerCast, and that is, Jeremy, how do you know this? How do you know that they have this goal in mind, and it's not something totally different, and we're being misled for some reason? That's a good question. Well, I think, it, I think it's a one plus one. Whether I'm an abductee or not, whether I have this information firsthand or not, I think it just, it just follows that any being that, you know, if there is this thing called one that a being wakes up to, the rest of it follows. You know, that sort of becomes your, your life's work, as it were. But, uh, you know, I, I have been sort of told in abstract ways and uh, shown these things in, in odd ways. And I did have this giant, for lack of a better term, I don't know, I am experience or waking up to Godhead or, or whatever that is. Now, it hasn't, having an experience like that, and I, you know, I can talk about it and all that, but it's, it's not something that, that I'm living the point of view of, but I imagine if I were, <laughs> it'd be a lot different. Now, when you say having this sort of an experience, having this awakening from one of these experiences, from an encounter, can you elaborate a little bit more on what exactly happened? Sure. The other, here's where I, I don't know if, you know, here's where I jumped the shark on this whole abduction thing. Like, it's not enough to just say I'm an abductee. Now, now I'm going to add to the mix that there's this sort of energy in my body that wasn't here prior to 2001 or no, I should say to 2000, and and it has its own sort of, I don't want to say it's a possession because I don't know what it is, but it has its own sort of directives, which are basically, uh, on one hand, to make the body do yoga and to do sort of meditative exercises and things that I don't have really a, a firm grasp on what they are. Um, on the other another level, it has sort of woken me up to these sort of latent psychic abilities. I went through these stages of having clear audio and visions and all this sort of, stuff that I used to chalk up to crap, but now I know it's true. And one fine day, this energy woke me up to this greater epiphany experience. Now, the energy 
uh, it's sort of hard because we're, we're jumping around subject to subject here, so it sounds a little yeah, yeah. connected. But the energy didn't happen through abductions. The, the energy happened through just clearing my mind for the sake of clearing my mind, just just to do it. And the second I did that, this thing took over, and my head started to spin, not like the exorcist, but like an, as in an exercise of rolling your head, and it wasn't me doing it. And it felt totally natural, except that this has never happened before, and usually it's something like that would be like a possession. So, so when I thought about it, it kind of freaked me out, but actually doing it or being in the situation, um, not scary. And that just sort of evolved. It, it, it evolved in me or flowered or whatever. And so a couple of times, so it didn't happen through abductions, but there have been a couple of instances that have linked it to abduction for me, which are other sort of long stories, except for the one that you're asking about, which is this big God experience. Is all of this making sense so far, or is this just sounding like running off the mouth? Because I don't want to keep going. Well, for example, when you talk about having this Godhead experience, certainly there's a long tradition of shamans and, and mystics um, atta- attaining these forms of consciousness through a variety of, well, both natural processes and, and things like yoga, and also uh, chemical help. I mean, that's certainly something that we've seen plenty of. You know, you have the use of ayahuasca, a hallucinogen, in Central and South America, and uh, you have shamans going into these states where they do indeed have these experiences that connect them to a greater whole. And so I, I wonder how much overlap we're talking about with those type of experiences and how they're then connected to the abduction experience. Yeah, I haven't done drugs or anything like that. I I, I suspect that they're connected in some loose way. We can get into that in a second, but I'll I'll just give you what this experience was, and then you can make of it what you will, and then then we'll get into why. We'll get into the connection, because I think I might have an answer to that. All right. But um, three times I've felt a different quality of energy, and all three times it seemed as if, and I'm... I'm not saying this happened, I'm saying this is what it felt like. A small sort of vertical slit at the base of my spine opens up, um, and I can feel this energy coming in, this other quality of energy. It feels like you're lying on a bed of, and I hate to say energy over and over again because it doesn't mean anything really to just say that, but that's what it was. I mean, it felt like levitating, but so the first time I felt this, it was just my entire backside, head to toe, was just... It was like this blissful energy felt like levitating. And it, so it came in through that slit, and then it you know, was there for maybe 20 seconds or so, and then it went right back out. You know, This is how it, my impression of it went right back out that slit, and the slit opened back up. Now, the slit is, is not a physical slit, is it? No. It's, okay. But it feels like it. I mean, I, no, my skin's not opening up. Okay, so I, it's not like that TV show where they have serpents in their belly. I won't go into mentioning what that show is. <laughs> I think most of you know that I love radio, and so I decide to look for the ultimate receiver for AM reception because I want outstanding AM reception day and night, especially night where it gets difficult. So I've discovered that C-Crane CC Radio Plus has earned the reputation of having the best AM reception, which is exactly what C-Crane intended when they designed this gem of a radio. Along with its legendary AM reception, it also has excellent FM reception, a weather band, TV audio, and the ability to run on batteries for, and listen to this, 250 hours. So whether you use it as your bedside radio in your kitchen or at work, the CC Radio Plus will give you the pleasure of clear AM reception. The radio is designed for the clarity of the human voice and the benefits of useful features like five memory buttons per band. They work just like memory buttons in your car. A sleep timer. 
an alarm clock so you can get up at the right time, and a weather alert that now works as an all-hazards alarm. You know what I want you to do? I want you to buy that radio, but also support this show by visiting our site, theparacast.com. That's theparacast.com. Right now, click on the C-Crane Sponsor button to order the CC Radio Plus for $164.95, and that includes free ground shipping and a free C-Crane catalog. Place your order today. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with James Steinberg and David Bianchi. You never know what's going to happen next. Let me tell our listeners, you're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to Jeremy Vaney. He's one of the people behind something called the First Annual Culture of Contact UFO Festival, which is being held in New York City, June 22nd to 24th. Also, it's co-sponsored by our friends over at UFO Magazine. So, okay, so it's the impression of the slit in your back as opposed to the reality. Okay. Yeah. Second time was a few months later, and same thing. The slit opened up, the uh, energy comes in, only this time something is <laughs> riding in with it. And I have no background for this at all. I have no religious beliefs particularly, and I don't believe in possession or anything like that, but th- this is just what it is. I mean, this thing came in, and I could feel it. It looked like a red gargoyle. I could see it like superimposed over my own skin. I could feel its feelings, and it felt like it was just basking in the glow of being alive for the limited amount of time it had in my body. Why it would care to do that if, if in fact, this was a real thing, I, I don't know. But that's what it was. It just was here. It felt immensely ancient and powerful, but kind of dumb. <laughs> Asked in the glow of being alive, slid back out, slid closed up, the end. Do you think it took something from you or gave you something? I don't think either. I think it just, you know what? I, God, I hate saying this too, but I, I almost felt as though at some point I had made a pact that, that it was okay for that to happen, like whatever this whole experience is, that that was part of the deal. And I don't even know what that means. I'm just saying that out loud, but I, mm-hmm. I don't know what that means. Anyway, the third time this happened was the Big God experience. This was in, I think, 2004. I had had this giant headache when I went to bed, and I didn't take anything for it because I, I just didn't feel like it. <laughs> just want to let it play out. Um, but as a result, I couldn't sleep. So I'm tossing and turning. I get up to go to the bathroom. I come back. I lie down. I turn on my side. And the second I turn on my side, I feel the slit open up. And now, and my eyes are closed, and it feels surgical. It feels like such a surgically precise thing that I don't want to move. I don't want to do anything to, because I don't know. You know, I don't know what's going on back there, so I don't want to screw it up. So I see light, like, feels like I'm seeing light anyway from outside my eyelids, but I don't want to open my eyes and see what's going on. And I feel like there are people behind me. And immediately there's nothing. There's just nothingness and, you know, who knows how long that lasts because it's nothingness. But the second I become aware of nothingness, I see it. I, I visualize 
almost like a drop of water over black, just stretching in all directions. So I'm seeing this, and I am this. Like, I'm identifying with it, but I'm also me in my own body, if this is making sense. I'm having this multiple perceptual thing going on. And so, okay, so this, this water droplet or whatever expands over blackness, and I can feel it like an elastic sort of tug in my own head. I'm thinking I'm dying. Like, I feel like my brain is going to explode or something. And then suddenly it snaps, this thing, whatever. You know, this, it does have an elasticity to it, and it snaps. And in the middle or of nothingness, or, you know, my perception of this nothingness, is this tiny light that goes off, and then zoom, out of that light comes the entire universe, the Big Bang, right? And it's totally odd to even speak about, because I'm me and my body, and I'm aware of me and my body, and my headache, and my fear that I'm dying at this point. I'm also watching this thing unfold in some 3D space, you know, that I can't, that I have no idea where that would be, you know, in the mind's eye or whatever. And I'm also identifying with that. So I am the universe exploding out. I am, you know, I'm looking at and I am the wind going through trees on a planet. You know, all of this stuff. I am the sun to a planet and I am the light coming off of the sun, giving life to the planet. I mean, I know what all of that stuff feels like now. And it's freaking strange to even just say it out loud. So all of this is going on at once, and I'm afraid I'm dying, and my sort of center of focus falls onto this red planet, which looks brighter than any sort of picture of Mars I've seen, but who knows. So I center on this planet, and I hear this female voice that I've associated with abduction saying, do we humans not understand that other planets cannot help us if we continue to block them out and kill ourselves? And at the same time, in the back of my mind... <laughs> As all of this is happening, I'm hearing, I can't remember exactly which it was, but it was like Lizette Larkins talking to extraterrestrials over and over again. I, I, except I think it was listening to extraterrestrials. I'm hearing this over and over again. All of this is going on at once, and now I'm freaking out. I'm like, I'm dying, I'm dying. So I concentrate on the headache, and I sort of pull myself back into normal awareness. The energy leaves my body. The slit opens up. I jump out of bed. Nobody's there, of course. You know, and now I'm just pacing around my room like an animal. Like, Jesus, what, what just happened? You know, who do you call with this? And why in the middle of this giant and totally real God I am awakening experience and I get this horrible contactee 1950s super dumb message. So I wrote it all down. I sort of had the narrative play this way to me to make sense of it. The God experience was real and I had nothing to compare it to so unconsciously I tried to associate it with aliens with something that I'm sort of familiar with and so I conjured the female voice saying that. I conjured I mean the Lizette Larkins thing didn't make sense to me because I knew she had a book but I knew it wasn't that book. So I just figured that was what that was, just me trying to associate it with alien abduction. So cut to a month later, and the learning annex calls me in New York, and they say, hey, do you want to come? Uh, we heard that you're a good speaker. Do you want to come teach this class on listening to extraterrestrials? And it was taught by this woman, Lizette something or other. And I say, Lizette Larkins by any chance? And they're like, yes. And it turns out that's her new book, you know, a book I knew nothing about. So now I'm thinking, okay, well, <laughs> you know, and I explained to the woman on the phone all of this. I'm like excited about this. I'm like, you're not going to believe this. So now I'm thinking, thinking, okay, either I had this, this psychic brain fart where I just sort of saw some random thing in the future, or maybe the female voice is Lizette Larkins. Maybe somehow she's, and she's a writer of this sort of, I don't even like her books. I mean, I, I'm starting to read one of them, and I'm, I just don't believe it, which is kind of odd given everything I'm saying here. But in any event, the voice did say, do we humans, didn't say, do you humans understand, do we? So I figured, okay, maybe that's Lizette Larkins. Maybe she's involved in my abductions, and wouldn't this be a, a fantastic swerve? So I got her email address. I emailed her and she sent me back basically something saying no I have no memory of this but who knows basically mm -hmm. so yeah psychic brain fart I don't, I don't know what that is but anyway so that was my big sort of experience and peripherally at least <laughs> alien related 
So let me ask a contextual question here, Jeremy. What was your interest in these topics, UFOs and extraterrestrials, before you had these awakening experiences? What's your history with this? Um, my history is being, well, my history is thinking that I'm an abductee and being very afraid of it and being washed either way by the literature. You know, I read Bud Hopkins and I get scared. I read Whitley Streamer and I feel okay. You know, that sort of thing because I don't really know what's going on. I, I, you know, and that all changed in 2001 when I actually finally saw them up close and then I was, you know, had conscious recall of that as it happened and so about that, away a lot of that stuff. T- tell us about that episode. My, my girlfriend at the time was uh, lying next to me. I had a mattress on the floor in, a, in my bedroom at the time and woke up because I saw this, this bright light coming in through the windows with sort of this diffuse uh, white, foggy light. Where was this, by and the way? In my apartment that I'm in now, which is in uh, Queens, New York, and, but in okay. a different bedroom. And anyway, so so this thing is what woke me up, and I and I sort of sat up on my arm, and my girlfriend did not wake up. <laughs> so I was like, okay, well, this is weird. You know, what what is this? Um, but didn't really think about it too much because you know it is New York after all. So you know, who knows? But so right. I, I sort of lay back down and rolled over on my other side, and there, right in front of me, are these three small gray beings with wearing, and I feel dumb saying this every time, but wearing tunics or wearing some sort of hooded cloaked thing, all three of them, and they're just standing there, and they're staring at me, and I'm terrified. I mean, just beyond the word terrified, it's just out-of-your-mind animalistic terror, but at the same time, I'm picking up from them the way you would pick up from any human that they're okay, that they're, like, they, there seems to be a playful naivety about them or something, you know? They're, nothing they're doing is horrifying, it's just there's this innate horrif- horrific reaction to them. Hey there, listeners. Have you ever thought about hosting your website? You know where you can actually host your blog or your webpage? Well, I'll tell you where to go. Host I can host I can and as a matter of fact they provide all our hosting too for this site and guess what their price starts at only $7 a month how could you go wrong it's reliability and speed speaks for itself and that's why we're able to provide you with this radio show that you're listening to right now it's host I can give them a try you'll be glad you did hey all you have to do is go to our website theparacast.com and scroll down a little bit you'll see a host I can banner that's a host I can banner at theparacast.com click on that banner and you'll learn more about host I can where we host our sites. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. 
You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to Jeremy Vaney. He's one of the people behind the first annual Culture of Contact UFO Festival, which is being held in New York City in Manhattan, June 24th to 27th, 2007. I deliver the date in case those of you are listening to the playback of the show in 2008 and you're looking for the event. It's also co-sponsored by UFO Magazine. Okay, so you have the Hooded Grays. What did you do yep. next? <laughs> well, next, next, not unlike a dream, <laughs> so I'll give that to the skeptics. Next, I'm in another scenario. I'm no longer in my bedroom. I'm standing. I'm still in my boxer shorts like I went to bed in, but I'm standing up, and I'm in a nondescript sort of black room um, or dark room, not, you know, that is painted black, but just dark, dark area. And I'm no longer scared, so somewhere between bed and here, I'm uh, sedated in some way. And I'm looking at this row of tables in front of me that's sort of not horizontal to me, but but vertically in front of me. And on the tables are humans lying there naked, unconscious. And the one closest to me is this sort of, I don't know, late 40s, early 50s-ish blonde woman. And the beings, I'm assuming the same beings, um, are, are standing around her and sort of looking at me like, see, this is what we do, you know, like show and tell almost. And I'm, I'm thinking, why am I seeing this? And the same female voice that I, you know, hear and that I heard in that God experience says, because you've always wanted to remember an abduction. Uh, and then she continued to say things <laughs> that I don't remember, that I, I don't remember anything else. I, I tried to, to sort of chalk that up to a dream the next day, you know. I didn't want that to be real for whatever reason, and it took me a couple of years. Primarily, the thing that made me think it was a dream was the light coming in from outside because, I, like I said, it was New York, and, you know, you'd think something like that would wake everybody up in the neighborhood. But cut to two years later, and I had another sort of odd experience where my bedroom wall, this is in another bedroom, the one I'm in now, uh, where, my bed, where my bedroom wall should have been was this same diffuse, foggy light. Yeah, and I, I, you know, I don't really have a full flush-out memory of that except seeing that <laughs> and going, oh, oh, I get it. That's, uh, there's some sort of portal there where my wall should be, so maybe that's what's going on. I don't know. Did you have that same fear reaction that time? No, actually, that time, what's weird is, this is the other thing that sort of links the meditation energy to this stuff, is that before I went to bed that night, um, this energy, every now and then it will want to do its own thing, and I'll just let it. And what it was doing was these weird things to my right nostril that that weren't, they didn't seem exercise-ish, they just seemed like they were pressing on it as if I had a bloody nose. So cut to later that night, or early morning or whatever, when I saw this light, I felt blood trickling down the back of my throat. Mm-hmm. And later, you know, when I woke up or whatever in the morning and was out talking to a roommate, blood started trickling down my left nostril. So I feel like whatever this is, this, you know, meditation energy or something manipulating it, you know, cauterized my nose in a way that I wouldn't bleed all over the place when whatever actually took place took place. But that's all I remember, those those bits. And there was, yeah, no, I didn't feel fear. I actually, I woke up once again because of the light, but, <laughs> but I was looking out the window, and there was no light coming from out my window. And this time when I rolled around, you know, when I rolled over, I was staring at this freaking vortex where my wall should be. So. And you're, you're pretty sure you were awake when this happened, right? Oh, yeah. No, I was definitely awake. What strikes me, Jeremy, and this is something that I'm sure you're aware of as well, in the realm of literature and knowledge about these abduction scenarios, we seem to see a fairly clear delineation between what one would call potentially benevolent beings expressing a concern for humanity and a desire to be involved somehow in the evolution of the species. But then we also see, conversely, a rather malevolent situation where we have 
creatures that are, for lack of a better way of putting it, deceitful. Saying uh, certain things and, you know, doing experiments with humans or mutilating cattle or mutilating people in ways that uh, would not seem to be something that's being done to benefit us, but indeed something that's being done specifically for their benefit. There's not a lot of in-between. Why do you think people report these two extreme polarities of, uh, of the context of these types of experiences? Well, I think there's something there that needs to be fleshed out, which is a lot of the negative experience stuff, I think, um, is a stage that you go through. Meaning that even though the fear doesn't go away, you can recontextualize it. I mean, nothing, I've had those experiences. I mean, even when the thing was in my room, you know, the three beings were in my room. I mean, that was very beyond all belief. And I, if I didn't intuit that there was some good-naturedness there or something, you know, I would think I was being terrorized because I'm feeling terror and here are these people and so one plus one, right? Right. Except that they're not doing anything horrible, you know? And I felt the terror before in their presence, but they're just staring at me, you know? <laughs> there's nothing really horrible going on. So I think that there's a larger problem, which is if you go to a therapist and they put you under hypnosis or whatever and you start screaming about all this horrible stuff, <laughs> you know, and the therapist hears that enough times, the therapist is going to naturally, I think, assume that, that there's something malevolent going on and won't believe anything else and starts sort of steering you in that direction, maybe accidentally or whatever. And if you come back later and say, oh, you know what, I, uh, I worked through that issue <laughs> and I, I see that the fear was my own, then they'll say, well, then you must be under the influence of aliens who are evil. <laughs> And, and telling you to say that because cause that can't possibly be true. So I don't know. I, I feel like we've got to sort of, A, discern that before we make a statement, and right. B, discern that some of this stuff probably is crazy people, like trying to deal with rape trauma or something. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I mean, sure. a lot of these things that I, that I read, especially about, you know, rip, reptilians raping me and all this sort of stuff, just doesn't ring true at all. That sounds to me like the... Um, the fantasy prone on top of trying to deal with a, some past sexual issue. So, I don't know, but I'm no shrink, so what do I know? Well, what you know is based on the experiences you've had, and, and one of the things that in reading the literature about this and in discussions with other people who claim to have had direct experiences with these entities, this notion of deceit is something that keeps resurfacing. And, and I guess in order to sort of delve into it a little more, I guess one would have to ask this difficult question of, if we have creatures that are interacting with humans in a way that is designed to push us forward or help us evolve or wake up, as, as I think you put it, why would creatures do that with us based on, you know, if, if you were a creature looking down at the earth and if you were judging the planet and humans based on, for example, television transmissions that have been going out into space for 50-some-odd years... I think you might come to the conclusion that we're not exactly the most friendly species around. I mean, or that all housewives are Lucille Ball. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730. 
or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, and we are talking to Jeremy Vaney. He's one of the people behind an event called the First Annual Culture of Contact UFO Festival, scheduled for June 22nd through 24th in New York City and co-sponsored by UFO Magazine. So, David. Well, he's also an author. That's right. We should mention that, too. A book called I Know Why the Aliens Don't Land. And I think we've got an answer to that, but... <laughs> well, all right. Well, I don't know. I, I don't know that we've got land an answer to, meet to me. That. I'll tell you that. Well, you know, no, Gene, because because you, you don't smell right. You don't smell like cheese, and they only want people who smell like cheese. What about chocolate? No, they don't want people that smell like chocolate. They want people that smell like cheese. What part of cheese you're not understanding? Gene is just difficult this way. No, that's okay. okay. We'll forgive no, you for that. Cheese? Gene, yeah, Gene. No, Gene, what not kind of cheese? No, not no. That's Alfred Lemberg, and he smells worse than any cheese. Which, by the way, Jeremy. I noticed that there's a, there's a comment on your website from Lemberg, and I just want to tell you that I'm impressed that you're the only person who's ever gotten that guy to actually put together a sentence that's in any way intelligible. Um, <laughs> Wait till so. you read his review of my DVD in the next UFO. Oh, really? Oh, well. You know, <laughs> like he's, a, he's got to be an alien, because, man, I don't understand what language that guy speaks. Um, what a piece of work he is. But, no, I mean, getting back to this, I mean, as someone who's naturally skeptical, I think about, for example, this idea that there's an alien species of some sort that's trying to help us. And I wonder, when I hear discussion like that, I think every species has to have a motivation of some sort. And the idea that there are aliens or some sort of other culture that is trying to move us along makes me wonder, as a native New Yorker, well, what's in it for them? I think what's in it for them was just what we were talking about at the beginning, that it's, and it sounds trite at this point to keep saying it, but oneness waking oneself up. They're waking up the consciousness of one, of oneness. And we either do that or we don't. You know, I don't think it's a Space Brothers thing where they come down, you know, or else they would have done that by now, you know, come down and say, look, here's some teachings. You know, no, it's like, hey, guys, if you want to stop being apes, (laughs) you have to totally not be what you think is human anymore, you know? And if we do, hooray. If not, we die and, you know, we're a teardrop in the eye of eternity or something less poetic, probably. Is it that binary? Is it it one or the other? Yeah, I think it is because, you know, animals already sort of represent animal consciousness. So there's no there's no reason for us to be animals plus, you know, just sort of a higher version of that the way we we kind of are now. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, hey, dolphins think so we're not bringing that to the table, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what do we bring to the table? Well, we bring this the ability to have 
for lack of a better term, you know, God's self-awareness. Other creatures have their own self-awareness, and we're supposed to bring God's self-awareness. If we don't do it, then, yeah, we, then we failed, you know? <laughs> we're a failed species. I mean, that, that's what it is. We overpopulate, we kill off nature, we die off. I mean, it seems to be pretty simple what's well, going on. But uh, can I just get back to one thing for one second? Just yeah, sure. The, the idea of deception and, and, and all of that, or, or even just the harshness of it all, mm-hmm. you know, the notion that, Beings have to come here and be compassionate and do all of the sort of lovey-dovey stuff that we would hope they would do is just a Christian perspective, you know? That, that's all Jesus. That, <laughs> but if you look at anything about Zen masters or, or any of that sort of stuff, it's all about, like, smacking you on the back of the head. It's all really kind of brutal stuff, you know? It's, because the lovey-dovey stuff doesn't actually do anything. It doesn't sort of teach you anything. It doesn't, doesn't empty you. It doesn't do the, the necessary thing. It just sort of plays to your, your ego. It sort of strokes you and says, uh, everything's going to be okay, you know? And everything's not okay. So I think that's just something to keep in mind. So you're saying no pain, no gain? Yeah, I should have just said that, but yeah, basically, yeah. Well, see, the problem is that if we take the no pain, no gain theory, that's all good and fine. The thing that occurs to me, though, is that it almost sounds like what you're doing is attempting to couch this or frame it in terms of a very human-centric point of view. And, And let me tell you what I'm talking about here, because something that I've been wondering about a lot lately, and it's come up on the show quite a bit, And I'll throw this out to you as well, because I'm curious to know what you think about this. There seems to be a lot of evidence. There seems to be a lot of evidence that points towards this idea, this notion, that perhaps what we're dealing with is not a species that comes from another planet. Perhaps what we're really dealing with is an older species than humans, an older civilization that's been on this planet for a long time. Maybe even possibly one which has had an involvement of some sort with our evolution as a species. And... Maybe they're the actual top of the food chain or the evolutionary chain on this planet, which, again, this is, I'm not saying that we know this to be true, but there seems to be a lot of evidence that once we pull away from this idea of extraterrestrials and deal with a, a larger realm of understanding or of inquiry, we see, you know, a huge amount of ships going into oceans coming out of the water. We see that there are so many different stories and there are so many different manifestations of the abduction experience. It's almost as if there is an engineered complexity to this, which in effect does indeed steer us away from an actual understanding and instead creates in us a perception of understanding. Because I think the problem here is that when we talk about ourselves as a species, we like to think that we are for example, the closest expression to what we would consider a oneness or a, or a godhead. Is that human vanity gone crazy, or is that reflective of a potential reality? Well, you raised some good points. I would say, one, when I say aliens, I don't know that they're aliens from another planet. I just am going with the terminology, but they very well could be an older species from here, something from another dimension. I mean, to me, it's neither here nor there, but as, right. as far as, no, I, I would say that you're you're right in saying that we as we are, are not the highest or, or whatever, you know. That, that all is ego, you know, to say, I, I am that. Right. What I'm saying is we're not that. We have the potential to, do, to be that, which would mean, essentially, a persona or a personality or an individuality, in some sense, a suicide pact. So, no, I mean, you're never going to, as an ego, as, as a person that you think of yourself, be connected to Godhead or whatever, be, 
you know, so-called enlightened, whatever that is. Mm-hmm. And neither am I. No, nobody is. But no, I, I don't think it's egocentric or human-centric to say that, that we have that ability. If oneness holds, uh, you know, what I had said about oneness, if that really is the case, then, then there is nothing higher than that. And so that is something that any sentient being in the universe, be it human or whatever, is evolving toward, is going to be able to obtain. So, so what about the atheists in the audience that think, okay, by oneness does he mean God? This is the problem, is that you've got, we unfortunately, you know, when talking about this stuff, have to share certain terminology with zealots and religious people and, and that sort of thing, just because of our lack of vocabulary, basically. So when I say God or oneness or whatever, I'm not talking about, you know, anything specifically religious or, or any of that. I'm talking about, I don't think it's separable. I think my experience of it, and I think what logically makes sense, I think they're both the same explanation, is that if you take away all things, you have nothing, Right. And if that's the case, well, nothing is a concept. It's not something, you know, it's a concept. So what you're left with is a concept. And concepts are intelligent, right? They, they exist in intelligence. So that sort of proves <laughs> that if you take away all things, you're left with intelligence. And that's what I'm sort of talking about. Mm, I understand how you're trying to get there. I don't know that that logically holds up. Sure, I don't know because, because then once you have intelligence, you don't have nothing anymore. Now you've got action. <laughs> right? Because intelligence implies action. That action would be the creation of all things. So it's not separate. It's not a creator creating anything. It's this creation, period. Intelligence, you can sort of get there through that little word game, but... Well, but it's a word game. You see, but that's the key, man. It's a, it's a word game. And when you introduce the word game into a word game, then you've got a game. And a game means there's a winner and there's a loser. Um, <laughs> I didn't well, mean a word I, game like that. Well, but the minute, well, but the thing is, the word game, whether it's in a word game or not, game implies winner and loser. Game implies a correct stance and an incorrect stance. We don't pretend to have the answers here. Certainly, Gene and I have a lot more questions than the answers. And it's hard to discuss these things because we all bring cultural baggage to the table. We all bring our own predispositions to this discussion. And Again, I know that in my own attempts to understand these things, I come to certain principles, I come to certain suppositions, and I've always found that it's almost best to throw everything out, and especially when talking about these topics, because it's just, I think, human nature for us to try to find boxes that we know and that we've defined to try to put things inside of. And so when we talk about, for example, you're talking about action and action implying intelligence, that to me almost implies that action means agenda. And I wonder if that's really true, and maybe it is true. I don't pretend to know this or, or, or understand this. It would be a terrible thing to look at the universe and think that none of it had any agenda, that it was just happening entropically, that it, it didn't have a beginning or an end. It's like I always say, like, the best story has to have a beginning, a middle, or an end, and an end. Otherwise, it's not a good story if it leaves you hanging in the middle of something. And I think that's just a human desire to see a certain form of logic wrapped around something because as human beings, I think what we do is to look at the universe, look at the world, and to try to fit it into our expectations. And I think that when we talk about things like the paranormal realm and when we talk about things like UFOs and the abduction experience. I think that there is a certain, I won't say a danger, but there's a certain set of limitations imposed trying to, you know, sort of understand this in the context of anything that relates to human experience. 
We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene in data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Let me tell our listeners, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, and we're talking to Jeremy Vaney, and we're going to ask him in a few moments about the Culture of Contact Multimedia Festival. David. Well, I... I don't know that I exactly have a question here. I, I think that, well, here, Jeremy, I, got, I, I do have a question for you. What was your religious background growing up? It's kind of interesting because my, my father is a, or was a uh, Protestant minister, United Church of Christ. Mm-hmm. My uncle was a Unitarian minister. So certainly you would think preaching the family, except that my dad's not a religious guy. <laughs> I mean, his whole thing was to go into, you know, rich white churches on Christmas and say, look, you're not doing enough for the homeless, you know, when what they wanted to hear was the, the story of baby Jesus. Right. So, I mean, his whole thing was just sort of right and wrong, not, not uh, you've got to believe in anything. And my mother just can't stand religion and never could, even though there's that. I don't, I don't know what you want to make of that. I mean, it, it would be very easy to say, oh, I get it, he's a son of a preacher man, right? But, but I was never ever raised to believe in anything. Well, that that's useful context, though, because I think that our early experiences define so much of who we become, or maybe not that, but certainly they define how we see the world and how we parse it. And so what, you're, what you've just said is that there was this extreme duality in your household. And it makes me, it must have been really interesting to hear your mother and your father have discussions about this. Because it sounds like they were almost polar opposites when it comes to belief systems. No, no, that, that's that's what I'm sort of getting at. Is like he, I don't think, you know, I think his take on Jesus or on religion is that, you know, it metaphor and if it works for you, great. I mean, the lessons there are, are good, and so okay. that's what it's about, you know. So it didn't really matter. Where are you in terms of your religious beliefs now? I mean, well, I mean, oh, let me hear. Let me. I'm going to ask you a question you might not like. Have these topics become, in essence, your religious? beliefs that's another good question you know it's hard to it's hard to say no to that and then sound like you're proselytizing or you know but (laughs) but i'll say no to that (laughs) no i mean no i I don't even understand how aliens would be you know i don't think they're here to save me and that's you know that sort of ego sense that we're talking about right oh i don't think religion religion is about being i believe that the experience that i had i think that was sort of it. So I guess you're going to say, do you believe in anything? Well, I believe just what I said before, that there's no separation. But, but it's not a belief. It's something that I experienced. So it's hard right. to say. It's hard to say, right. yes, I have a belief. Let's ask it a different way. I believe mm-hmm. the literal aspect of what I experienced. How about that? Okay, that's fine. Let me ask it a slightly different way. Why do you think you were involved in this experience with these beings why do you think you were chosen to have some sort of interaction with them? That I, I really don't know. It, it could just be as simple as, you know, there's a pool of random people that they pick from, you know, and I happen to be one of the lucky ones or unlucky ones, however that works out. I don't know. I've never intuited anything. I've never been told anything that I know of about that. I don't know. What do you remember about your interactions with these things? 
not much, just basically what I've told you and other tidbits of things that are sort of useless because I haven't, other than to say they're here, you know, other than to say this is here in your life, deal with it. But I haven't, you know, done vast hypnosis sessions or anything like that. I did hypnosis once in college and I don't remember what I said, <laughs> but the woman offered me free therapy. So there's your... So it was regression hypnosis that you did? Yeah, yeah, and she was very new agey, and I felt like she had too much of a will to believe. I remember saying certain things in the beginning that felt as though, to me at the time, felt as though I were, that I was trying to just come up with an answer for her. You know, it didn't feel real to me at all, but it also felt like I was only under hypnosis for a few minutes, and I was actually out for a couple hours. <laughs> hmm, wow. And at the end of it, like I said, she offered me free therapy. So I'm assuming what happened, and I never asked about it until I did um, my first radio interview, and they said, what did you say? And not only do I not remember what I said, I, I don't even know why I didn't ask her ever in all of these years. So I'm hmm. assuming she suggested not to remember, suggested don't ask, you know offered me free therapy. I, I could be wrong about that, but that's just what I assume. But I have no memory of it. But actually, I wanted to submit something to you about missing time and why we sort of remember the points of entry but not the middle. And usually what people say and what I have said is that it's fear-based, that, that um, either we just block it out because of our own fear or it's something these beings are doing, you know, blocking the memory. But could it be this, that what they're doing doesn't take place in normal space-time? Mm -hmm. And because that's true, the only way to access it is through dream flashbacks or hypnosis or things that trigger the timeless, spaceless sense in us. Do you think that's possible? And because that's true, that it unfortunately gets lumped in with dreams and hallucinations because those are also things that <laughs> that don't take place in normal space-time? Uh, not only do I think that's true, I wonder if that's not done on purpose in order to create a sense of ambiguity on the part of the experiencer, in fact. This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. Fascinated by the strange and unknown, things that go bump in the night, UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to ConspiracyJournal.com or email Tim Beckley at MrUFO at WebTV.net. It's all out of this world. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with James Steinberg and David Bianchi. You never know what's going to happen next. Hey, let me tell our listeners, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, and we are talking here with Jeremy Vaney, and we wanted to mention briefly, in fact, before we do our final section, I want to mention this, Jeremy. There's the first annual Culture of Contact UFO Festival, June 22nd and 24th in New York City in Manhattan, coinciding with the 60th anniversary of UFOs becoming a cultural and entertainment phenomenon. And the festival, Jeremy's part of it, also our friends at UFO Magazine. Jeremy, in two minutes or less, tell us about the festival. It's 
the first time that abductees have ever gotten together and said, look, we're going to stop hiding the shadow, we're going to come out of the voice modulators, and, and we're going to tell our story and see if, see if we don't come to some general conclusions about it. Um, so it's really, for us personally, it's sort of a taking back the power from the media circus exercise. But for the average Joe, it will just be fun and informative. You know, there's going to be music, there's going to be speakers, there's going to be all kinds of movies. And we're not limiting the speakers to just what we think is real. You know, it's we're, we want to represent sort of all aspects of ufology and just try to make it cool again and try to, to make this whole subject not A, not something to be laughed at, and B, you know, a legitimately butt-kicking time, you know? So that's sort of what it's about. Do you think it's possible to get to the point where people can look at this and not think it's fringy material? Or do you think it's always going to be something that the mainstream looks at and goes, oh, these people are just nutty? No, you know, it's, it's weird, because I, I have to keep likening this to, uh, to homosexuality in, <laughs> in America, in that, you know, as soon as they started outing each other and, and coming out of the closet and, and sort of forming almost, you know, I guess a political movement or something, the only way the media could laugh at them was to start putting, you know, start just filming the weird things at gay parades, you know, as, as sort of a downer, and they've even sort of stopped doing that recently, so you know, I think it takes time anytime you have some fringe, quote unquote, you know, cultural aspect saying, look, you got to pay attention. Yeah, it's, it's going to be a tough sell, but I think eventually people come around. Once they see you're not totally crazy and, and dressed in Spock ears, I think you're okay. You think so? Yeah, we'll find yeah. out. <laughs> uh, Dave, take off the Spock ears, please. I don't have <laughs> Spock ears. Sorry. I don't have any Star Trek related memorabilia at this point. Nor Sorry. do I. No, no, no Star Wars either. Uh, well, yeah. No, it's a good thing because, uh, you know, some of us want something meatier for our mythology than the meanderings of George Lucas. But as someone who's worked for him, I, I think I've earned the right to say that. So, Jeremy, uh, tell us about your column in UFO Magazine. We, we haven't really talked about the fact that you write a column. And um, you've, inter you've interviewed some interesting people. Well, who's the most interesting cat you've interviewed in that, in that column? I'm curious. Well, for me personally, it was uh, Whitley Strieber and his wife, Ann Strieber, which I actually, I have, as you know, I have, the, um, I have the audio of that interview up on my website, which you can just listen to for free. It's kind of crappy audio, but whatever. It's a good interview. And that's been a lifelong dream. You know, I've always wanted to, to interview him, and, and I did it. UFO had actually asked me to, he was promoting the book The Grays, but they had asked me to interview him about more abduction-type stuff and see if we don't have any agreements on our own issues, and that's what I did. So that was interesting to me. So what was it like interviewing him, and what did uh, you feel about his stories, about his experiences? Well, my take on him is that he's pretty, pretty honest, open book in one sense, um, which it comes to bite him in the butt a lot because he, you know, if he's feeling like this is negative from the stuff he's reading, he'll voice that and then you think oh this is negative and if he if he thinks the opposite one day and thinks that no this is beneficial then he'll voice that and so I think as a reader you know you start to go oh well what is it you know he's talking out of both sides of his mouth but it's really just a human you know <laughs> trying to make sense of it all but but being a celebrity and doing it publicly so I feel like he's misunderstood somewhat in that way but my, my sense is that he's just honest, you know, but also a showman. I mean, I had the feeling in that interview that, um, you know, he does want to sell books, and he, he did have a, an air about him of being a mysterious and an authority figure. So I, I feel like he does play that up somewhat, but you kind of have to, you know. I mean, in one sense, you are a businessman selling something. So I don't know. It all gets a little, gets a little fuzzy in there. Well, but see, that brings up a really interesting question. Do you think that... 
this idea of being a businessman and selling something detracts from one's credibility in this realm? It, you would think that, but uh, you'll see now... Like, I've got my movie and I've got my book, and I'm not lying in them. And because I'm not lying in them, the thing is, if you know anything about selling things, you're supposed to act like an authority figure, you know? You're supposed to, to know what you're saying and, and to have a nice little message that you give to people, and I can't do that, you know? And as a result, I don't sell anything. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I'm not on some big speaking tour like a David Icke. So David. I th- and if you look at, like, okay, what is popular? Well, David Icke is popular. You know, the people who do say with certainty everything, you know, everything, you know. You really think that, and, you think David Icke is popular? I mean, even the fringy nutcases, I think, Look at his stuff and go. Oh, this guy is just—he's stoned. Do you really think uh, he's yeah, popular? Yeah, but if you look at his crowds, I think he's—he's he's hugely popular in that sense. You know, I think really? people come out to see him speak. Sure. <sighs> I don't think wishy-washy and I don't know what I'm saying sells quite as well as this is what's going on. You know, people will will people basically be in truth, but they don't. <laughs> I think it's sort of the bottom line. I guess I'm cynical that way. I don't think people really want the truth. I think they think they want that, but they really want somebody to tell them what's going on. And since well, it's an unknown. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's really true, actually. And I think that, you know, the times that I've been in crowds of people talking about this and people demand disclosure, we want disclosure. We want the government to come out and tell us what's going on here. My reaction to that has been to turn to these people and say, do you really want disclosure? Do you really want the, to know the truth if it's not something you're already vested in? And, you know, that's why I guess maybe, again, it's just the, the natural cynic in me. I'm not skeptic, but cynic. And I don't know that that being cynical is, is good in life. I think it actually ends up making life more complicated than not. But the cynic in me, when I hear talk about these beings being benevolent, the cynic in me goes, mm, I don't think so. And I'd love to be wrong on this, but I think that people want to hear that. And in fact, I brought this up on the show before, I had heard some reports from the last International UFO Congress where uh, David Jacobs got up and started talking about his writings and research in the realm of abductions and how I guess he feels that it's a fairly malevolent thing. And apparently most of the audience got up and walked out of the room. It's not the message that they wanted to hear. Well, that's interesting. I didn't realize, I thought David Jacobs' view was the predominant view, that this was evil aliens doing malevolent things. I thought it was the big sort of X-Files take on it was what was popular. I didn't realize that. But I guess it depends on the crowd, you know. Right. I'm sure in some, some New Age circles, it's they want to hear about Space Brothers. Right. Well, apparently, uh, for the International UFO Congress, that's exactly what happened. So, you know, the, the problem with disclosure being, well, if people really found out what this was really about, could they handle it? You know, can you handle the truth, as the line from that movie goes, or you can't handle the truth? I suspect, ultimately, if we ever do find out the reality of what this whole thing is about, it's not going to be what a lot of us think it is, and I think it's not going to be what a lot of us might have hoped it would have been. But... I yeah. reserve and the right I, to be wrong. In any, event, in any event, don't we already know that it destroys civilizations? The second you go into, you know, say a native culture, you automatically infect that culture. Yeah. So it would know, appear. What, what do we think is going to happen here? You know? Right. right. We can't exactly. go on as we are. One more time, tell us about this special event, the first annual Culture of Contact UFO Festival. Well, it's going to be movies, guest speakers, music, and other assorted <laughs> varieties of fun artwork, um, alien abductee artwork. And the theme for this first year is Flying Saucers. It's the uh, 
60th anniversary of the coining of the term flying saucer. So ostensibly that's what it's about, but what it's really about is abductee empowerment because it's all run by alien abductees. Most of us strangers to each other just sort of got together and said, you know what, it's time. <laughs> it's time to do this. And we, we're not even sure what that means. We just know that it feels as though something has changed in the relationship and that it's time to reach back in a similar abstract way that, that these beings have reached out to us. And so this is sort of our expression of that. Where do we find more information about it? Uh, you can go to cultureofcontact.com and it's got all the information you'd ever want to learn. <laughs> okay, cultureofcontact.com. We'll have a link over at the Paracast website. Jeremy Vaney, thank you so much for joining us on The thank Paracast. You for having Thanks, Jeremy. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.